We started this conversation about uh, the weary world rejoicing. That was where we landed on our sermon series for Christmas this year. You might say, well, why did we go there? And one of the reasons is I think that all of us would agree, and there might be times this year where we felt weary. We felt like we wanted to get through this year. We felt like we wanted to get through an aspect of this year. There were things that came up this year or stuck around for too long this year that we are just done with, and we want it to be over, and we want to move on. And so maybe you're entering this Christmas season looking for something to be happy about. And last week, we talked about joy, and I'll reflect there in just a minute. But when we think about weariness, that can very easily sneak into our lives, and it can be present at Christmas time. And one of the things that we connected as we talked last week and we'll connect this week is that at the beginning of the New Testament, of the Gospels, of where we find the Christmas story, there was a gap of time where God had been silent for a while. In fact, if you look at the end of the Old Testament, the first section of the Bible, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there was 400 years where there was no new revelation. And so we saw that they endured 400 years of silence. Now think about that for a minute. If you're familiar with the end of the Old Testament or the Old Testament, God was very active. There were prophets letting people know things and there were, God was communicating with them and God was making promises and God was moving and they had a lot of interaction with God. And then all of a sudden he disappears. No new revelation, no new prophets, at least that we know of, and no new scripture being written. And in the midst of that, what happened with the nation of Israel was they were going through some turmoil as well. They had different nations that were kind of trading who was in charge of them. And so they're going through these frustrating times. They're waiting for the Messiah and God isn't saying anything to them. It would have been a very weary time for the nation of Israel as they basically waited in silence. And so they entered the Christmas season weary as well, not even knowing that the Christmas season was coming to them. And so they endured that 400 years of silence. And what we talked about last week, we talked about weariness can mean searching for something you can't find. And we talked about how the gift to Zechariah and Elizabeth was that John was going to be born and they had wanted a child for so long. And they grew so weary of waiting for that child that when an angel shows up and tells Zechariah that they're going to have a child, he is cynical about it. He doesn't believe it. He says, how do I know? It's like, dude, there's an angel telling you, right? That's how you know. But he didn't believe it still. And so that weariness had grown in him. And and we talked about joy and we define joy as this, an extreme happiness that cannot be deterred by present circumstances. And what we learned from Zechariah and Elizabeth is that joy is not something we can establish on our own. We can chase happiness. But when we recognize that God's plan, God's working in our lives is what's more important, then we can have joy as a byproduct of living the life that Jesus has called us to live. And what Zechariah and Elizabeth received was not just a child to make them happy, but a child that would bring them joy and would announce the coming of the Messiah and would announce that joy, not only for them, but for those of us who hear the story thousands of years later. And so we saw that joy come true for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this week we're going to talk about hope. We're going to go somewhere different than you might be expecting us to go on a Christmas Sunday, okay? So we're going to go to a different story. We're going to read a story uh, about a woman named Ruth. 
And so we're going to go back into that Old Testament where we know God was a little bit more active. And we're going to start in Ruth chapter 1 and we're going to go uh, to verse 1. And, and if you want to follow along with us, as always, the words will be, the verses and stuff will be up on the screen for you. If you want to go to our website, mygracefamily.church and click the follow along tab, you'll find all of the verses and notes there. Or if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, you can do that as well. So in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 this is what it says in the days when the judges ruled in Israel a severe famine came upon the land so a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab taking his wife and two sons with him all right so time out let's just make sure we understand what's happening right there's a famine in Israel famine back then very bad thing you can't get food, you can't make money, you can't do all of these things. Your cattle suffers, you suffer. It's just a bad place. So they pick up what they have and they go to Moab. We've got mom, dad, and two sons. All right, so they go to somewhere where there is no famine and try and make a living there. Verse two says this, the man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi and their two sons were Mahon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And, th- and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Mahon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Okay, so pause again so we understand context. They move. They're good. The two sons get married, but dad dies. So dad's out of the picture, but at least they have the two sons. Well, guess what? Then 10 years later, the two sons die. And we don't, they, they didn't have any children. So what we have is an Israelite woman, Naomi, who's stuck in a foreign country with her two daughters-in-law, and they have no one to provide for them. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in previous weeks, but that in this context, if there wasn't a man present in your, in your life as a woman, this was not good. Because you didn't have as much of the ability to work or to do things that a man would have the opportunity to do. It's not like today where things are more equal. But you needed someone, you needed those sons or grandsons or husband to be able to provide. And so when you find yourself as three women, one of which is in a foreign country, and there's no man present to provide for them, this is a problem. They could easily be taken advantage of. They could easily run out of money, run out of food, and this would cause great turmoil for them as they processed what their next step would be. Let's keep going in verse 6. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and to return to her homeland. Verse 7, with her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living. And they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. Verse 8. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and me. Verse 9. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. So they start to head back to Judah, and Naomi says, You know what? You can go back to where your homeland is. You don't need to stay with me. Why would you come back to a place that you don't know? Why don't you go back and see if you can find husbands and find favor with someone? And she lets them off the hook. She says, you, you go ahead and you go. And when she says this, they all break down crying. This is clear, right? They, they love each other. 
And these, these three women who have found themselves in a situation they never wanted to find themselves in have really connected together and bound together in order to survive. And so they break down and they cry. And we go on in verse 10 and 11. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? Verse 12, no, my daughters, return to your parents' home, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Verse 13, would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. That phrase in and of itself just encapsulates exactly how Naomi is feeling. She's devastated. She's frustrated. She doesn't know what to do. And she even feels as though God has turned on her. And here's what we know is true. God doesn't always give us what we've hoped for, right? We talked last week about, I said, you know, our kids have Christmas lists, but so do we. We have lists this Christmas season uh, maybe about what we want to receive or what our plans are or what experiences we want to have or what family connection we want to take place. And we have that list and God doesn't always give us what we hoped for. Naomi and her daughters-in-law did not ever hope to be in this position. What they hoped for was to grow old together and even when Elimelech passed away, Naomi's hope was, well, I have my sons and they're going to have kids and we're going to be able to have a family and this is going to be great. And then all of a sudden God changes that and he moves us from a place that we wanted to be to somewhere that we didn't want to be. And maybe for us, it's, it's hope of what our family would look like moving forward. It's hope of the job we would have one day or it's hope of what, what things we're going to establish in our lives and what things we're going to accomplish. And it doesn't always work out that way. And what's true And what we see from Naomi is that sometimes we even take the impact of God's plan personally. When God's plan doesn't match up with what we wanted or what we hoped for, we take it personally. Like God is doing something wrong to us or God is out to get us. And I would say that that thought process makes sense. It makes sense why we would understand that way or why we would think that would be true. I just want to read the end of verse 13 again so we understand that this is something that biblical people worried about and thought about. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. It's like God's got her and he's ready to deal that final blow. That's how she feels about her relationship with God at that moment. Maybe you felt that. I've felt that where we deal with this real thought of what is God doing? Why would he move me to this place? Why would he have me do this? Why am I going through that? We have no information that Elimelech and Naomi did anything quote-unquote wrong, right? We have no information that they had lived a life of sin or anything like that. And so they might be looking at it and saying, we've done our best to live the lives that we should have lived. And still God has put us in this situation. And When we think about hope, the opposite of hope would obviously be hopelessness. And sometimes hopelessness finds us as not seeing a way through. We see our situation, we see what's going on, but we just don't see how we're going to get to the other side. 
Um, one of the times I understood this the most in my life, and I don't remember if I told this story before or not, but I, when I was in college, I think I was a sophomore, um, I had a friend who lived in Buffalo, New York, that went to, co- went to college with me, and I had gone to visit him my freshman year, and we went up with some friends, and we went to Niagara Falls, and it was a lot of fun, and I figured out quickly uh, that hockey in Buffalo was just more of a way of life, so when my friend invited me up there, he had a rink in his backyard, and so he just said, hey, do you want to come up for a few days? We'll play on the backyard rink, and we'll hang out with some friends and all that stuff. That sounded great to me, so I drove up at the beginning of Christmas break that year when school let out, and, and we had a great time, and while I was up there, they started to call for a pretty decent snowstorm that was basically going to sweep right across New York. And so I think I was supposed to leave on Saturday morning. And instead of leaving on Saturday morning and getting stuck there, because we were pretty sure with the lake effect snow, I was going to get stuck there for a few extra days. I decided to leave Friday night and try and beat the snow home. That didn't work. And so I started to drive and it started to snow. And it take, I think at the time it took me about six hours to get to Buffalo, it took me over 10 hours to get home. And I spent the whole night just like white knuckle in my little white Hyundai Elantra with like the beams from my headlights, snow coming down, and two tracks in front of me by myself as a 19-year-old. How many parents are nervous now, right? So my parents called me before they went to bed. They said, where are you? I said, I'm in a snowstorm somewhere, and they said, okay, we'll call you in the morning. So when, by the time they called me in the morning, at least I was into Pennsylvania, and the snow had basically stopped, which was good. But I spent that night just focused on getting through, because if I went off the road or I pulled over, again, I'm in a little white Hyundai Elantra. Like, I, if I get plowed in, like, no one's finding me. This is before the time where I could have, like, the location on my phone. I had a cell phone, but it didn't have location services, and I remember in the middle of the night just not knowing when I was going to get through it. And I even started to call my friends. I wasn't dating anyone at the time. Becca and I hadn't gotten together, so I didn't have anybody that was a significant other. I just tried to like call friends and say, like, can you look at the radar for me? Like, how close am I to getting out of this? Is there, is there hope for me? Is basically what I was looking for, right? And in the middle of the night, I just felt like I needed to get through, but I didn't know when the other side was going to come. This is how Naomi feels. This is how maybe you've felt. Maybe it wasn't an actual real storm, but it was a situation where you just looked at the situation and you went, I have to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to. I don't know how to get to the other side of this. And this is exactly where Naomi finds herself. And and when we lose hope, we often lose faith that God has our best interest in mind. And Naomi feels this completely, that God is against her. She doesn't know how to get through this. And she doesn't think that God really truly has her best interest in mind. And we even see this in a different, if we go back to verse 12, just for a minute, I just want to read it from the NIV because this is so impactful. It says, returning home, my, return on my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if there was still hope for me. She's lost hope in herself. There's no opportunity for her to move forward. And so what I, I want us to understand and think about today So we've all been to this place of hopelessness. You've probably felt something that felt hopeless, or you've been in a situation that felt hopeless. And I want to like kind of zoom out from that for a minute, because we can get focused in our lives on these hopeless situations. But I want to zoom out and kind of understand this truth, that our situation as sinners was hopeless. In fact, if you would say that you're a follower of Jesus, you probably, I hope, came to the point in life where you recognize that 
your life without Jesus was hopeless. And so what you did was you took that step and you put your faith in him to say, now I do have hope because I know Jesus. And what I would say is if you haven't taken that step, right, not being a jerk, but I don't understand how we would see life as having that hope if we don't know Jesus. And so when we recognize that our situation as sinners was hopeless, we have to then look at what the Christmas story represents. And I want to go briefly just to Romans chapter 8 and just read verse 3. This is what it says. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his son, his own son, in a body like the bodies we sinners have at Christmas. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Here's what I want us to recognize. When we find ourselves in a hopeless situation, Jesus has already addressed our hopelessness on a much deeper level than any situation we can find ourselves in in life. Because the hope that we have is that even if our life here were to end, we would find ourselves in the presence of God. I, would, I want to go back to Ruth really quickly. So in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19, says this. So the two of them, Orpah has gone now. So Ruth is still with Naomi. The two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. It is, is it really Naomi, the women asked? This is our first connection, right, to Bethlehem, to the Christmas story. Very interesting to me, first of all, when they arrive, Everyone's excited to see Naomi. Contrasted with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus arriving in Bethlehem and nobody having any idea they're there. I just think it's a very interesting part of the story. So let's keep going. Verse 22 of chapter 1. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman, and they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring, the beginning of the barley harvest. This is important because what we're going to see and what part of the story we're going to skip over is, is what Ruth does is when they get back here, she goes out and starts trying to get them some food and some money. And so one of the things that, one of the laws that was in place was that when people would go into the fields and they would gather, they were supposed to leave some behind for people who were less fortunate. So this is what Ruth does. She gets up and says, I got to go do something. And so she goes and gathers and she finds favor with somebody. And so we're going to skip forward to Ruth chapter two, starting in verse 19. Naomi says to her, where did you gather all this grain today? Naomi asks, where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. And she said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. Verse 20 of chapter 2. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. So remember, we talked about if there wasn't a man connected to the situation... That was very problematic for women at this time. And one of the things Naomi said to her daughters-in-law previously was, even if I could have sons to then give you husbands who could provide for us, right? They needed somebody who was going to be able to provide for us. What she's saying is this man, Boaz, who now Ruth has found favor with, is one of the men who could possibly be someone who would redeem them or care for them or love them or provide for them. And so they make this connection, and it's very, very important. But here's, here's the thing, and this is where it connects to us too. A Moabite wife wasn't exactly what Israelite men were looking for. It's not someone that they would have chosen first. 
And Boaz actually has the right to say, I want nothing to do with this. I don't want to take on this wife. I don't want to take on this responsibility. I don't want to be this person. And yet, Boaz still says that he will. And in fact, if you read the story, I encourage you to go back and read the whole story this this week. The whole book is only four chapters long. There's actually someone else who's first in line. And Boaz goes and talks to him and says, do you want, because I'll do it, right? You don't have to worry about it. I'll step in and be the redeemer. That's what Boaz does. It's such a cool story. So let's fast forward to Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. And when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Verse 14. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. Verse 17. The neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed, and he became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. So here's what we have to understand. Naomi gets to a point in her life where she feels like she's got zero hope at all, and she even feels like God is completely against her. And what happens is for her daughter-in-law, she marries someone who becomes David's grandfather. Even when Naomi was hopeless, God worked out the line of the Messiah to come through her family. She never knew that, necessarily, right, till she got to heaven, that this was going to happen. But in her hopelessness, God still worked out hope. And what we talked about last week, I mentioned this to you, is that Christmas means God making his way to us when we could never make our way to him. For Naomi, the story was hopeless. There was nothing else she could do to work this out. But God had a plan and God worked for this to become the case. That she would be so blessed that we would go back and read her story and understand that from her hometown of Bethlehem and David, the line that Jesus would come through, all the world would be blessed. And in the most helpless situation, Jesus shows up to be the hope of the world. This is why Jesus came at Christmas, to be the hope of the world. For us to have hope that when those situations come up in life, or we recognize that our lives without Jesus are hopeless, that we would be able to continue to have hope in him because he is in control, and he is the one orchestrating the story, and he has a plan. See, last week we learned this. Last week we saw that there's a big difference between happiness and joy. And we talked about if we chase happiness, we're not ever going to find joy. Happiness is just going to keep eluding us because we can't always get there. But here's what this week means. There's a big difference between confidence and hope. Hope is what Jesus offers us, but confidence is what we should have in him when we understand that he is the hope of the world. Hope turned into confidence is when we know that for sure God is going to show up. We know for sure that he loves us and cares for us and sees our hopeless situation and will step in and can step in to help us in those moments. Because why? Because our hope cannot be based on us. It must be based on who? Our Redeemer. Boaz was the Redeemer that offered hope to Naomi and Ruth. Jesus is the Redeemer that offers hope to us and the rest of the world. It's not a story that we always connect to Christmas, but you see the Christmas story woven all throughout the story of Ruth. So what do we do with that? How do we put that into practice this Christmas season? Well, first of all, I would say this, that you and I are called to hope in Jesus. 
We're called to that. That's why Jesus came, right? He came to offer that hope. And so we're called to recognize that and live in that and exude that. Here's the issue. Sometimes we, especially as followers of Jesus, can be not very hopeful people. And we can sometimes exude things that just, we want to talk about sometimes what we're against or what we're frustrated by or what we're annoyed by. And and those things come out of us, whether it's our words or what we post or whatever it is. And what Jesus says is, I'm the hope of the world. And when we're the ambassadors of Jesus, guess what? We're the ambassadors of the hope of the world. That's what we're called to be. And so there's, there's two levels to this, right? In everyday life, we should be offering hope to people. But also in the moments that feel hopeless, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, I'm not saying don't feel. I'm not saying don't cry. I'm not saying don't be sad. Don't be frustrated. Don't have feelings. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we have to frame it as there is hope that Jesus has offered me. And when I was at my worst and my life was hopeless as a sinner, Jesus showed up for me. And so when we live off of that foundation, it changes the perspective we have in these moments. And so when we lose our hope, the problem is we can't be hope to others. If we are not Christians or followers of Jesus who are defined by the hope of the world, we can't offer that hope to other people. And that's what we are called to do, is to offer that hope to others. And so this is, this is another moment. I, I can't, we can't do this for you, right? You have to kind of process this, and I have to process it for me, and say, are my daily actions, my daily words, my daily interactions with other people, are they offering hope to people because of the hope that I know I have in Jesus? I know that this Christmas season might find you weary. Maybe you're even in the midst of a situation where you are so weary, you feel like Naomi. You think God's against you. You're angry at him. You're frustrated with what he has done. And if you're not today, unfortunately, there probably will be a day where that feeling comes true. But who are we? Who are we founded upon? What do we believe about Jesus? What do we believe about the Christmas story? Do we recognize that he came to be our hope and to be our redeemer, even when we weren't the most attractive person to be the redeemer for? Boaz could have said no to Ruth. Jesus could have said no to us, and yet he didn't. And so my challenge for us this Christmas season would be to give hope to the hopeless. Sometimes I think when we say, when I say things like that, or I've heard other people say things like that, what we can think of is like people that are really struggling. They, they don't have a lot of money or they don't have a place to live or they don't have a lot of food or something like that. that. That's true. Like we could give that, but have you met people just around and about who just don't have hope? They're angry with life. They're angry with the situation. They don't like where our culture is going. They don't like all these things. They don't like decisions, our leaders, and they just come off as a hopeless person. Guess what? Our job is to come alongside that person and offer them the hope of Jesus. Scripture doesn't say that people will know we are Christians by the things we're frustrated by. It doesn't say that they'll know we are Christians by the things we're angry about. It says they'll know we're Christians by our love and by the hope that we give to other people. That's when people notice the difference, is when we are so filled with hope, it's, it's just true that we seem to be in a space where we trust God and know that he's got a plan and we're going to see that out. And we're going to know that when we were at our most hopeless, Jesus came to be our redeemer.
So I would challenge us to do some reflecting this week and just say, how do I exude hope to other people? How do I offer that hope that Jesus offered to me, to others? Because we believe that when they accept the hope of the world and they understand their relationship with Jesus and the fact that he is their redeemer, that it will change their lives. And that's what Jesus offered us at Christmas, was that idea of hope that we could be founded on. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we are so grateful that you came as the hope of the world. As Romans said, that you, you recognize that, our, that we just weren't enough. We, us following the law, us doing what we think we should do is just not going to be good enough to get us into a relationship with you. And so you came at Christmas to offer us that hope. And I ask that as we continue through this Christmas season, that we would recognize the gift of the Redeemer that you are. And that we would exude that hope to others. And I pray for anybody that is in a season or in a situation where they feel like Naomi. They're angry, they're frustrated, they feel like you have turned on them. I ask that you would just cause them to feel your love and to help them recognize the hope that you have offered to them in the most hopeless situation and no situation on earth is without hope. We thank you for the way that we can connect the dots from Naomi to Ruth to Boaz to David to Jesus. And we are so thankful that we get to celebrate the hope that you offer us in the Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.